Um, I'm going to be teaching from a passage in 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Um, so if you would, why don't you stand and hear a reading from God's Word, and uh, we'll consider it together. Now when the king, this is King David, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God that is not silent, but has chosen to reveal yourself to us. We pray that in these next few moments, you would take your word and by your spirit's power, press it deep into our own hearts and into our own lives, that we might reflect your glory. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's um, Christmas time, which means, at least for my family, normally every Christmas we watch the movie uh, Elf. And this, for whatever reason, we didn't we did not get around to watching Elf this year. But it has been somewhat somewhat of a tradition to watch the Christmas movie Elf. And if you've seen the movie, one of my favorite scenes is when they're at. Um, the department store, like in the mall or wherever it is, the big department store, and the, the room is all decorated with Christmassy stuff. There's fake snow and there's presents and there's Christmas banners, and all the kids are waiting with this stage and they're excited for Santa to come out. And Santa kind of comes around the corner, and all the kids start, ah, Santa! They're cheering, they're screaming, and Buddy the Elf, 
as you know. He's in the crowd as well, and he's so excited. Santa, Santa, it's me, it's Buddy. And Santa, of course, this is not the real Santa. This is an imposter dressed up as Santa to take pictures with the kids. And he's like, oh, hey, Buddy. And, and Buddy begins to kind of feel suspicious. This doesn't seem like the Santa that I know. It doesn't sound like him. And so he walks up and he starts investigating and trying to ask him questions to figure out, this is not the real, this is not the Santa I know. And so he asks him this question. He says, okay, if you're the real Santa, what was the song that I sang you last year on your birthday? And he goes, wow, well, happy birthday, of course. And Buddy's like, <laughs> and he gets a little closer, and here's what he says to him. He's discovered at this point, this is not the real Santa. And here's what he says. This is one of the best lines in the whole movie. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? You sit on a throne of lies. You stink. You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. So here are all these kids excited to see Santa. It looks like Santa, sounds like Santa, doesn't really smell like Santa, but they don't know. But what Buddy is saying is, you're, this is a counterfeit dressed up as the real thing. What I think is interesting, if you were to kind of think through that, would it be possible to be relating to what you think of as God, but for the God that you're relating to to actually be a counterfeit? I think that's an interesting question. Does your God smell like beef and cheese? Is your God the real God, or is it uh, a counterfeit, a dressed-up version that kind of looks like God, sounds like God, but isn't the real one? And how would you know? How would you know if the, the God that you're relating to is the real one or not? Well, the passage that we just read, I think, is really fascinating because it is God revealing to David and through David to us what he is actually like. It's God saying, hey, you, want to, you, you, you might have a counterfeit version of me in your head and in your heart, but here's what I am really like. Here's who I really am. And of course, in some ways, that's what Scripture is as a whole, is God revealing who he is. But this, this passage is really unique because it gives you, I think, three concentrated aspects of who God is, right all compact into these few verses. So what, what I want to do is just highlight these three aspects of who God is. To show you God saying, this is what I really am like. This is the real me. And here are the three aspects I want you to see. That the true God comes close. The true God gives grace. And the true God is faithful. Those are the three aspects of what the real God is like. He comes close. He gives grace. And he is faithful. So let's look at these one at a time. Here's the, here's the first thing I want you to see, that the true God comes close. And you see this in, in verses 1 through 7. Here's the story. David, as you, as you can kind of see in the, in the opening verse, David is at the height of his game, as you could say. He, with, without going into a whole lot of backstory, there's been a whole lot of political turmoil. There hasn't been a king, really, that's been good. David comes into the throne, and what he has done during his reign up to this point is that he has conquered a whole bunch of enemies. He has unified the nation of Israel. He has established Jerusalem as the capital. He has brought the Ark of God into the capital. Everything is flourishing. Everything is thriving. This is kind of like the beginning of the golden era of the kingdom of Israel. And he is sitting up on his porch one night, hanging out with his pastor, Nathan. And they're drinking sweet tea, perhaps. And David looks at his pastor, 
And in verses 1 and 2, he says to him something like this. Something's really bugging me. Here I am, and I live in this palace, this opulent palace made of cedar, which is just expensive. It's just like, this is really nice. I live in a really nice, awesome palace. And he's like, and God dwells in a tent. That's not right. I want to build him a magnificent house, a temple that he can dwell in. I want to build him a palace as well. And Nathan, the pastor, says, dude, that's a good idea. Green like that thing all the way. And so they finish the night with that kind of being the plan. And they go back home. And then in verse 3, um, God approaches Nathan. And he says to him, you need to shut this project down immediately. This is a bad idea. Do not do this. Uh, and I want you to go and tell David something like this. Here's my kind of the Matt Howell translation, Matt Howell paraphrase. Go to David and tell him, oh, you want to build a house for little old me. You feel sorry for me that I don't live in a palace like you. Well, that is really sweet of you to consider little old God, God like me. I want to do something big for me. And so in verses 6 through 7, God says, I have been in a tent since the day I brought my people out of Egypt and I've never complained about it. I want to be where my people are. Where they go, that's where I go. When they suffer, that's when I suffer. When they wander, that's where I wander. I want to be with my people. That's where I've always wanted to be in. In other words, he's correcting a fundamental misunderstanding that David had about God. David assumed God is like the gods and the rulers of everybody else. He needs to be in a big McMansion away from all the common people. It needs to be in a gated community away from, like, everyone else. And God is saying, you don't understand who I am. The real God comes close. I dwell with my people. In fact, that's, why, that's, that's what Christmas is. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Emmanuel. Literally in Hebrew, God with us. God is not content to be away from and removed from his people. He wants to be with them. In fact, so much so, as we see the rest of the Bible unfold, being in a temple, a building, is not close enough for God. God says, your very body is going to be the temple. I don't want to just be with you. I want to dwell in you. That's how close I want to get. Intimately, maybe even uncomfortably close. Now, why? Well, I... Um, I have two small kids. We have a seven-year-old and we have a five-year-old. And I don't know about the small children of this congregation, but my children hurt themselves all the time. In the first few months of the year 2017, we went to the ER twice. I, I feel like, like they fall and cry and hurt themselves like eight times a day. They're just literally just in the other day I was with my son and he was in the kitchen and he turns to leave and he just slips and falls and cries. Like this is like, this happens all the time. So maybe it's just my children, I don't know, maybe it's just children in general. But what's really fascinating is when they skin their knee or they fall off their bike and they, the, the hot tears come and they run towards mommy and daddy, what do we do? We hold them, we kiss their boo-boos, we just sit with them as they're kind of melting down, and eventually they just kind of, they kind of calm down and stop crying. Something really weird happens because, you know, like, kissing a boo-boo doesn't heal anything. Like, I know, like, 
They don't teach all that in medical school. Like, just kiss their boo-boos and they'll be healed. Like, that doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. But what's really mysterious is that it actually does. It does do something to just be with them. There's something about when you are with them in their pain, it heals them. And you apply that principle spiritually, and you think, okay, the moments of my life where I am feeling rejected, or humiliated, or depressed, or anxious, or afraid, or I feel out of control, or I feel angry, what if I could sense the nearness of God in those moments? What would it do? What if I actually knew that God draws close? I think it would heal us. I think it would at least change the way that we relate to reality. To have him that close does something to you. Uh, you know, my, my, I remember when my daughter was two, uh, she was, I fixed her a blueberry <coughs> Eggo waffle. She was sitting in her little high chair with a little tray and I cut the little waffles. And one of our friends had just made some homemade maple syrup. He, he lived in Vermont and he had sent us some homemade maple syrup and I wanted, so he came to try it. She never tried syrup before. Had waffles, loved waffles. So I poured the syrup out and like, take a waffle, dip it in this and try it. She wanted nothing to do with it. Freaked her out, it was weird. So I was like, okay, let me help you. So I took a little bit of the waffle and I dipped it in the waffle and I kind of held it up to her face. I'm like, just try it. And she did like the, like the golden retriever, like does not want it in her mouth at all. Because I'm a good dad, I think, I forced it. <laughs> and so I, I, I pressed it up against her face and the syrup was all over her face and she just loses it and looks at me like, you monster, why would you do this? She's wailing, and I just waited, because I knew as soon as she tastes it, this is going to be a very different story, but she's wailing, it's all over her face, and she's screaming, and she's crying, and eventually her tongue kind of gets out, and she tastes it, and it's like instantly stops, and I knew, and I was right. I mean, we are going to have to pay for counseling for her when she gets older, but um, in the moon, you know, it's a victory for me, and that image for me stuck with me because here's someone with syrup all over her, on her lips, and she didn't taste it. And I think what's interesting about that is that can be very um, analogous to a lot of church folk, where we can have God kind of all around us, on our lips, talking about him all the time, and yet haven't tasted him, haven't experienced him. And I think there's, there's a big difference between do you... Do you say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I pray to him sometimes. Yes, I believe in Jesus. That's believing in data, which is important. But there's something very different between experiencing that reality, of, of sensing the nearness and the intimacy of God. Because that's where he is. He draws close. That's what the true God is like. He is not distant. He is not removed. He draws close. And he wants you to experience and to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the first thing that we see about the true God. He comes close. He draws close. Emmanuel, God with us. But here's the second feature, second aspect of what God is like. The true God gives grace. And you see this in verses 8 through 11. Here's David. He wants to do something big for God. I want to build this big temple, this big thing for God. And it sounds very pious, right? It sounds godly, mature. I want to do something big for God. 
But God confronts him and says, actually what you're proposing is pretty dangerous uh, because you have forgotten how this relationship works. You have forgotten that fundamentally this arrangement between me and you is that I am a God of top-down, one-way, one-directional grace. I am the doer, you are the receiver. I'm the provider, you're the receiver. I'm the one that saves, you're the one that gets saved. That's how this relationship works. So, in verses 8 through 11, God just kind of rehearses all the ways that he has been abundantly gracious in David's life. I'll just highlight a couple things. Look at verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Everyone would call David the king. And God says, go tell my servant, meaning you need to let David know who the real king is. David, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're Mr. Big Shot. Everyone might think that you're the king, but you need to recognize who the real king is. You're a servant. You're my servant, just like everybody else. And then in verse 8, he keeps going. It says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God says, you didn't come seeking for me. I came seeking for you. And when I found you, you were tending sheep out in the field somewhere. Now, tending sheep was not like a high-end fancy job in this particular culture. This was, this was a pretty low-end job. And God's coming to him and saying, look, you were stuck in a dead-end job going nowhere. And I sought you, and I pulled you out, and look at you now. You're the king. This didn't happen just because you worked hard and pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. This is all grace. And then he says in verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. All your military success, David. All your accomplishments. All your achievements. Because of me. Because of what I have done for you. All your accomplishments because of me. And then he says in verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see what God just did? David said, I want to build you a house. And God says, nope, I'm going to build you a house. In other words, you want to do something big for me? It's not how it works. The way this works is I do big things for you. What, what is God doing here? He is reminding David that he is a God of grace. David is the recipient. God is the provider. He, his job is to receive over and over and over and over and to be reminded and to realize what you are and who you are fundamentally is a receiver. I'm the God that gives, you're the one that receives. Uh, this happened all the time growing up w- with me when, when our families would go, when my family would go out to dinner with another family. And we would enjoy a nice meal together and at the end of the meal, this always happened, there was this odd ritual that happened between the dads. You might know what I'm talking about. The dad, the check would show up on the table, my dad would reach for it, and the other dad is grabbing for the ball, and, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. And it becomes this kind of polite tug of war with who's going to pay the check? I insist. No, 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 I insist. I insist. And so inevitably, someone loses this polite little battle. And so somebody, let's say it's the other family, they take the check and say, our treat, our treat. But what they're saying is, I'm, gonna, I'm paying for this. Your meal, it's a gift, it's a treat. It's my, it's my treat, it's my joy to be able to provide this for you. 
But then something, there's like this weird shame thing that happens with the dad that loses the, the, the tug of war. And what does the dad say? The dad says, the, my dad, the other dad would say, thank you so very much. That is so kind of you. We'll get you next time. And I get what they're doing. They're, they're trying to be polite. They're trying to say, like, I don't want you, I'm not entitled to this. I, I don't expect this from you. They're being nice. But there is something inside of us that says, I don't like to just receive. I, I've got to find a way to even the score. I've got to find a way to pay this back. I've got to find a way to, to get us back on the same page. Because for you to just give and give and give and for me to receive, that's humbling. And we don't like doing humble. So we want to do something. And David is saying, I want to do something for you, God. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You've forgotten how this works. The way that we relate to each other is that I do things for you. And you receive. And we don't like that because that's so humbling. To just have to get the meal over and over and over and over puts you in a position of constantly being humble, of constantly having to recognize, I can't pay this back. In fact, even if I tried, it would be offensive and wrong. Look, if you were to go through the chapter of... Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you were to just circle or to highlight all the different times where God says, I will. Shows up 23 times in one chapter. I will. I will. I will do this. I will do that. I will do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I will do this. I will do this. Just over and over and over and over and over to make the point, I'm the giver. I'm the one that gives grace. I give grace. I give grace. You receive it. That's how this relationship works. I think so often as Christians, we think, I've got to do big things for God. But what Christianity fundamentally is, is God doing big things for you. That's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world basically, fundamentally is saying, go do stuff for God. You need to do more. You need to be devoted more. Believe more. Be more sincere. You know what Buddha's last words were? His last recorded words Never cease striving. That's the fundamental message of every other religion. Don't stop. Never cease striving. You know what Jesus' last words on the cross were? It is finished. We think Christianity is about making big sacrifices for God and for Jesus, but what Christianity is is the message that God has made big sacrifices for who God is, is is one that fundamentally gives grace. He draws close, he gives grace, and here's the last thing I want you to see, that God is faithful. He's faithful. And this is where you see this show up in uh, verses 12 through 16. David says to God, I want to build a house for you. And he means a temple, somewhere for you as well. And then God says in verse 11, no, I'm going to build a house for you. There's a little bit of a wordplay here. He's using David's same word, but he's, he means something else. He means he's going to build a dynasty for David. We're, we're watching the, the first season of The Crown right now, so we're always talking about the, the House of Windsor, the, you know, the House of, you know, whatever, all these different kind of these, these family dynasties. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you are going to have royal descendants, and your children are going to, are going to be kings, and their children after them are going to be kings, and there's going to be a, there's going to be a king on the throne of David from this point on. 
And uh, he, he says, and there is nothing that's going to stop this from happening. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God is saying, okay, one day you're going to die, and I'm going to raise up somebody after you to take over the, the Davidic, the David throne. Not even death is going to stop this thing from happening. And then he goes on in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Actually, go back to verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart for him. God is saying, look, your sins are going to sin, and they're going to screw it up, and they're going to blow it up, and it's just they're going to mess up and mess up and mess up. And guess what? Not even their sin is going to stop this thing from happening. Death can't stop it. Sin can't stop it. And then look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. This is what he's saying. This is what the promise is. Someone is going to be on the throne of David. Death can't stop it. Sin can't stop it. He's going to rule and he's going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So you get to the end of the Old Testament. Here's what happens. All these different sons of David start showing up. And most of them are awful. And they rebel against God, and the nation of Israel gets invaded, the temple gets destroyed, the kingdom completely falls apart. And when you end the Old Testament, the kingdom has been destroyed, and they've kind of rebuilt it. It's kind of like a sad second 2.0 version of what the original temple was. There is no David king on the throne. There is no king, and they're basically slaves of Rome. That's how the Old Testament ends. So what happened to all these big promises? If you, if, it always reminds me, reading the Bible kind of feels like uh, the Lion King. You remember the, the Lion King? Remember when, when Mufasa is the king? The, the, the land is green and it's flourishing. It's vibrant. All the plants are green. And um, the evil scar takes over the throne. And when he starts ruling and reigning, everything gets... Like, it feels like a wasteland. Everything's dried up and dead, and everybody's kind of living in fear, and it's all dark. And that's kind of how the like, Old Testament ends. It's just kind of this wasteland. You've got these big promises that are lingering. And then how does the first verse of the New Testament begin? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And just in case, you know, you read through those genealogies and you kind of get lost on the names and don't care, the, that is connecting the dots back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the long-awaited son of David. Which, by the way, in case you missed it with the genealogies, when Jesus is walking around in the Gospels doing his thing, what is everybody calling him? What's everybody referring to him? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, son of David, son of David, the rod of Jesse. And in case you really missed all of those references, what's the very first thing that Jesus starts talking about when he shows up? The kingdom of God is at hand. I have come as the long-awaited son of David to be and to bring this kingdom into its fullness. Death can't stop it. Sin can't stop it. Because I take your sin and die for it on the cross. And with my resurrection, I destroy death itself. Sin and death die with this reign of Jesus. And what do we know about the reign of Jesus? It is a reign of kindness and mercy and love. 
where he rules and he brings healing to those that are hurting. He brings friendship to those that are lonely. He brings freedom to those that are in bondage. He brings joy and gladness to those that are downcast. This is what he's doing, bringing justice and mercy and love, healing the wasteland of the world that we occupy. I mean, if you go back to the Lion King, when Simba, the rightful heir of the throne, comes into power and he becomes king again. Look what happens to the wasteland. All the grain starts coming back. It starts slowly coming alive again. And that is what the reign and the rule of Jesus is doing right now. And it will happen forever and ever and ever until this world becomes the world that reflects his glory. His kingdom coming on this earth as it is in heaven. He is faithful to his promises. And you can trust them. I'll end with this. Um, I feel like I've told so many stories about my children this morning. I'm going to tell you one more. This was not intentional. Um, it's just the way that the, that the cards fell today. Um, my son is five years old, and we're like we have had like the the longest wrestling match with potty training this child. I mean, we're like a year and a half deep into potty training this kid. So you can all lay hands on me and pray for me afterwards. Um, but when we were really kind of in the thick of it, it's a lot better now, but when we were really in the thick of it, um, we bought him this big Star Wars Lego box that was a, you know, an X-Wing, Pose X-Wing, if you don't know what you don't know anything about Star Wars. It's a spaceship, a big Lego spaceship that he really wanted. And so we bought it, we put the box on the table, and he sees it, and his eyes get big, and he's like, whoa, and he's looking at all the pictures. We say, okay, read you can't open this yet. You can open it when you go seven days without any accidents. Seven days, and then you can open it. You know, you're trying to give a little incentive, a little reward. This is, I guess they might train people. I don't know, still doing it. So um, that night, you know, he's, he sees the box. He's kind of looked at it all day. That night, hey, can we open it? Nobody. you got to go seven days without any accidents, and you can open it. Next morning, can we open it? Nobody, you, you gotta go seven days without any accidents, and you can have just asking this question all the time. And what he would do is he, start, he just took this box everywhere with him, because it took longer than seven days. He took this box everywhere. He'd be in the backseat of the car, we'd go around and he wore the box in the backseat with him, he'd look at all the pictures. He slept with it, slept with it. It was in bed next to him, this giant Lego box that took up half the bed. He sleeps with the box. But during the whole process, I mean, this may have been two or three weeks before he actually got to open it. But during the course of those two or three weeks, he stopped, I noticed he stopped asking if he could open it. He, he just started relating to the box as if it was the toy. I, like, you know, the pictures on the front, and I literally would see him go, and he's walking around the house, flying the box around. And he eventually got to open it, and you know, it's, now it's fun. But that, that story has always kind of struck, stuck me and, 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 and stuck with me and struck me that um, here's, this, here's this kid that has, has, he's relating to the box as if it's the toy. And I just wonder if that's true with some of our spiritual lives, where, where, where God is this a concept. We're relating to God like he, he's, a, he's a box. We have ideas about him, and we, we're kind of relating to the box but we haven't yet broken through to experience who he really is. 
to enjoy what's on the inside, as it were. The real him. And what I think this passage does is it helps recalibrate our thinking. And it's an invitation to open the box, as it were. It's an invitation to engage and experience the real God, the true God. Because the true God, the God of the Bible, is one that draws close. He is not content to be removed and distant from you. He wants to be close. The true God is the God that gives grace. He's the giver. He's the provider of recipients. And the true God is faithful. He has promised a king that will reign on the throne of David forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's who God is. And the invitation for us all is to know him and to enjoy him forever. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. A God that is better than our wildest dreams. A God that is more radically, scandalously gracious than we could ever comprehend. A God that loves people that have betrayed you and yet you continue to love us. You continue to bind yourself to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would show us the way of real life. That real life, eternal life, is in knowing you and in knowing your Son. Would you give us the freedom and the grace to respond and turn afresh, or maybe turn for the first time, towards you to know you and to engage you in your love for us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. At this time, if our ushers would please uh, come forward. We'll take our tithes and offering.